The Ascent of Board Games is a podcast in which we discuss the history and evolution of board game mechanics, concepts, and themes from the dawn of history to today's newest releases. We talk, we laugh, we pick on each other, and we occasionally get things wrong. But we hope to provide both entertainment and education to today's discerning podcast listener, you. Welcome, everybody, to episode 19 of the Ascent of Board Games. I'm going to introduce us again because we haven't done this in a while because we assume everybody knows who we are, but we do have some new listeners periodically, so I'm Brian. I talk a lot. I'm Frank. I just ramble. I'm Joe. I have very strong opinions. I'm Jason. I buy a lot of minis. And I'm Mike. I game a lot. Unlike most of us. We like talking about games. We don't get to play them as much as we like. Anyway. This is episode 19, and we are here to talk about programmed action games. This is another one that seemed like a simple definition when we got started. We were thinking about games like Robo Rally is the obvious example, when you lay out the things you're going to do that turn in order, and then you do all of them regardless of whether it turns out to be a good idea at the time or not. As usual, there are a lot of fine gradations in that. We went back and forth. There are a lot of war games in particular that use sort of simultaneous order writing, but we didn't really want to make them count, partly because there are a lot more games in this genre than we thought. So this is basically going to be games where you are planning for multiple actions and or multiple turns ahead of time, and you're going to be doing those things when that action comes up, regardless of whether it's a good idea or not. Yeah, kind of like you lock in your future plans, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent when you end up executing it. Right. And the first game that we came up with that fit that description was Nuclear War. Back in 1965, Flying Buffalo by Douglas Malawicki. And this is a very satirical card game on the topic of nuclear war. Actually, there's two ways to win the game. Basically, you want to convert all of the world's population to your way of thinking and or destroy all of the ones that don't have your way of thinking. You do this by playing a series of cards that may be diplomatic ways to win population over that kind of thing, or, of course, nuclear weapons. What makes it interesting and what puts it on our list is the fact that in the start of the game, you're going to lay out a series of three cards. Then on turn one, everybody turns their first card over and does what it says. Maybe it's a a propaganda thing that wins some of the opponent's population over, or it may be a nuclear weapon launcher. Now, that doesn't do anything in and of itself, but if you've played a launcher and then the next card is a nuclear weapon, then the bombs start flying. Each turn, you flip over the card, do the thing, assuming it's been prepped, and then lay down a, a third card in the row. So you're always dealing with two turns ahead of activity. As a sort of thing where, you know, if you see someone play a launcher, you have a pretty good idea that there's going to be weapons coming at you next turn. You may not have time to react yet, but you may sort of lay things out. And you can bluff by playing a launcher that doesn't have any weapons and that kind of thing. It's really the first example we found of going through that sort of future planning state. The game, as far as I know, is still in print, and there's actually still expansions coming out for it periodically. It is still in print. There's actually a 50th anniversary edition that glows in the dark that they released. That's amazing. <laughs> Perfect. That so, was actually yeah. a Kickstarter back in 2015. So, Yeah, Flying Buffalo stills around. They're still doing like tunnels and trolls and stuff, too. Yeah, Nuclear War was one of their very first games, wasn't it? Like the first game, yeah. yeah. It's still doing pretty well. I had to ask Frank, did you buy the, the wooden box edition that uh No, no, uh, no, I did it not. looks so pretty. I want the one with Claudia Christian. That's oh, all there is to yeah, it. Yeah, there's an app that has Claudia Christian, uh, Commander Ivanova from Babylon Five, who will speak in a Russian accent as she tells you what's going on in the game. That's amazing. Oh, is this a game related app or it is, somebody hundred yeah, percent okay. game related? 
So our next game is kind of a progenitor of a whole bunch of games. It's called Sopwith, uh, released in 1978 by Game Time Games and Heritage Models. It's hard to separate those two exactly. Designed by David Dyer, which is the only game he's credited for, but I think he did some of the other Heritage Game Time games. This is based on World War I biplane flying around. In this game, you plan for three moves. A move is either a go forward one space, stand still, slide one left or right, kind of a side slip, or just turn one left or right. Or if you're an ace and you've taken out a plane, you get to do an Emmelman, just kind of turn around. And that's it. Each time you plan, also if you're going to shoot, hopefully you've got something at the end of that particular movement phase that's in front of you. Otherwise, your ammo's spent. And you have to do so much damage to a plane based on your distance when you actually shoot. You fly around, there are clouds, you blow each other up. I like that there's a stop option. I didn't know biplanes from World War One could hover. <laughs> they can kind of do a stall, in which case they just, you know, plummet out of the sky. sometimes the engine starts again. Yeah. <laughs> Fine. Yeah, I mean, you can do a stall. But this game really started an entire trend. You got Blue Max in 1983, which basically combined all three phases into one, thus dragging it to the realm of the simultaneous action that we're trying to avoid not talking about. But if you played Wings of War, that phase structure where you're spinning an ammo, deciding to shoot, playing down three cards, totally the same. And it feels a lot like Sopwith. I've got a couple variants of Sopwith that are much closer. One called Aerodrome. It plays in 3D with using these like 172nd scale model planes on antennas. It adds altitude rules and you've got these elaborate like wooden control panels with bullet shells. I see that at Gen Con every year. I'm yeah, like, this it's like, is crazy. It's fascinating. I could I never one. play it, but it's amazing to watch. I have one. Of course you do, Frank. Yeah. Oh, it's gorgeous. But they added plane stats. And you'll see that that three kind of push structure. I think actually every game with that predetermined kind of vehicle movement really comes from Sopwith. Could certainly be. And certainly we noticed when we were kind of going through our initial list, there are a lot of sort of dogfighting games that fall into this category. Although most of them are now you're just giving each ship or vehicle one order. Yeah, for your next But move. that is a, a real common Idiom, sir? Idiom for this kind of game. You know, everything from there was an old Battlestar Galactica game, not to be confused with the Hidden Teams game. There was a Starfighter game from that back in the original series. There was Star Warriors. Uh, even the new X-Wing follows a similar structure, although, again, it's only one turn at the time. Heritage, and I think David Dyer, because that game's uncredited, did one game called Starfighter that basically randomizes what order you move in. Uh, but you predict only one turn. And so it's a much... Yeah. Yeah, I think if we really wanted to, we could do an entire episode on just dogfight games. It's certainly possible. Oh, and, yeah, totally. and I kind of like that because X-Wing in particular does some really clever things, but that is outside the scope of this episode. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking at some of these pictures of Sopwith on BGG and like they have, there are some players who have done some <laughs> fascinating things. No, I was looking at that this morning and oh, they're taking these little 144 tiny models. There was a second version of Sopwith that was published by someone called Gamer in Germany who owned a store called Gamer. And he added uh, weather balloons, A guns, <laughs> bombing runs. A lot of that shows up in Aerodrome as well. I mean, I think one of my favorite things I'm looking at these pictures is there are people who have put together models of like explosion clouds, which is like, oh, yeah. Oh. Miniature wargamers are not fooling around. You haven't seen my copy of Battle Beyond Space, have you? I have not. 
Ah, yeah. The fact you said they do bombing runs. I mean, we literally talk about like World War One bombing runs where it's like drop grenade out of plane. <laughs> uh, there were World War One bombers. I mean, the Gotho is one of the largest planes up until the Spruce case. And it's a huge, sprawling, massive bomber. Yeah, it's kind of like a turd on the front too, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Turd on back. And, yeah, it, yeah. I, I see that in an air museum. <laughs> it's like this looks like a just a flying target. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. It is true, but in World War One, none of the planes were very good. <laughs> I mean, they were covered in fabric. They're fine. <laughs> yeah, the engines and the guns mostly worked. And I think there's a trend because of the maneuvering was so important because you often had fixed guns shooting mm-hmm. out front. I think that's what drove a lot of the play of these games. I think you see most of them come up as, you know, World War One. I. I did briefly want to touch on Magic Realm, which we talked about a bit in our Adventure Games episode. That was a 1979 Avalon Hill game by Richard Hamblin. We've already talked about how big and sprawling and complicated and insane this game is. What makes it relevant here is that basically each day you are planning your four or five actions for the day, which may be move, explore, cast a spell, loot for treasure, that kind of thing. What makes it interesting is that these are on double-sided hexes. And when you say move, you're saying specifically, I am moving to this space in this hex. And if someone, say casts a spell that flips that hex over to its enchanted side, the paths that lead to that square may be different. So I'm not going where I thought I was going, and now all of my moves are invalid, or I'm attacking something that is much worse than I planned to. It's also possible a monster could be revealed in the sure. way. And yeah, there's a lot going on in the game. There's a lot going on in every aspect the game of the game. All over the map. Yes. You know, I feel like last time we talked about it, we also talked about how much we were going to play this game, and then that's not <laughs> happened yet. Yeah. It scares me. People continue threatening me with Magic Realm, and they have not pulled through with that threat. I have to look and see if there's a tabletop simulator for it. There's not. There's the Realm Speak with the full Java implementation. Yeah. You know what? I think, I think I looked at that. In fact, playing face-to-face is easier with Realm Speak. We were going to play a game of it a few years ago, and I remember I got Realm Speak set up, but it's just so many bits. Brian, Joe is calling your bluff. You got to follow through now. <laughs> yeah. In all of our spare gaming time, yeah. let's pull out a weird old day killer 1970s adventure thing so next game up is swashbuckler and it's weird odd sequel adventure these were from 1980 published by quinto games t o'neill and g patronus for adventure and t o'neill and s craig taylor for swashbuckler the first is probably the more important Quinto did a whole line of games called the album games which were basically published in what looked like well albums what are those frank <laughs> so back in the day, music came on big vinyl discs. <laughs> when I was your age, television was called books. It was sort of a gatefold thing. It was probably about, what, a foot square, a little over in that? Yeah, it was like literally album size. Yeah. Well, I'm trying to explain that for people uh, who have yeah, no context. Whatever. Um, and basically, you pull the thing open, there's a map on one side, and like the holders for the counters and everything. It was actually a pretty clever system. It took up relatively little shelf space. And yeah, the maps were on the, you know, liner insert for... <laughs> I'm going to get an okay boomer about this time. (laughs) We're on the inside, the liner notes of the album. And then you had a couple boxes for bits that were kind of tucked in between. Or sometimes where the records would go (laughs) would be bits and counter sheets. So that format produced a whole bunch of games. But Swashbuckler was a classic Three Musketeers era bar brawl had a few scenarios but most people i know just played as a straight out bar brawl yeah there was one on the deck of a ship but you know bar brawls there are more chandeliers to swing from (laughs) chairs to knock over you plot basically three actions ahead 
and then you execute them. Actions had various action points. You had to deal with turning your little guy, whether you were facing slicing. mattered. Oh, yes. Oh, oh my facing gosh. mattered. Yeah. But then, whether you were, you know, stabbing, whether you were next to a table and pick up a mug and then throw a mug at somebody, you could throw knives, slash, you could uh, swing from the chandelier, mm-hmm. hop up on a table. Push tables, push pull tables. rugs out from under people. Oh, yeah. It had literally everything you could want. It had the most important action of all, wave your hat. <laughs> I mean, you could even say, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed oh, yeah, my father. Totally. Prepare yeah, that's to die. a free action. <laughs> so, Frank, I got to tell you, I just pulled up the artwork for Adventure. This is like perfect representation of 1980s knockoff Star Wars. Oh, yeah. Oh, totally. yes. It's also got this wonderful tagline on the bottom. A game of man-to-man brawling in the far future. Because I think Swashbuckler was a game of man-to-man brawling in the Age of Sail or something like that. Because honestly, Adventure is literally just a science fiction reskin of Swashbuckler. <laughs> yeah, you've got laser blasters. Laser swords for and everyone. And you still throw mugs at people. <laughs> yeah. They're just mugs of green stuff. Space uh, mugs. <laughs> blue milk. Right. Exactly. Milk. Yes, mugs of blue milk. But because of this, I mean, you could pull out the rug from someone, tumble them over, and oh, the rest of your moves are shot. <laughs> you have to stand up now. <laughs> And yeah, it was a real game for people who wanted to be dicks to each other. It was a hoot. As, you know, small cardboard-based skirmish games go, it was a lot of fun. It was a little long, though. I think our games ran two, three hours. Because it's really hard to hit people when people keep moving you from where you're supposed to be. I think the best weapon was thrown daggers, which could just target somebody. Yeah. Adventure, by the time it added laser blasters, you just stood there and shot each other a lot (laughs) and got really tedious. So, in 1982, Richard Hamlin from Magic Realm did one other game that's really not as well known as it should be, Gunslinger. And this is kind of, in a lot of ways, the definitive Western gunfight combat simulator. That's a pretty big statement there. I love definitive statements, It is an absolutely amazing simulation of Mm. everything that can happen in a gunfight. It, It shares a lot with kind of the adventurer swashbuckler. But here's the kicker. Every round is two seconds. You divide it into five segments of 0.4 seconds each. And each action takes one to three segments. <laughs> and you're playing cards that represent just how many segments an action can take. So you could play, you know, one to three cards each round, representing all you're going to do that round. And a lot of those can be firing. And just getting punched will screw up your firing for the rest of the round. So a lot of these games are over in like six to eight seconds. <laughs> The basic scenario is everyone standing around a poker table and suddenly somebody accuses somebody of cheating. Everyone falls out and just goes for each other. And the combat may last, again, six to eight seconds. Which is 45 minutes to an hour of actual play, I'm (laughs) sure. The game is also really deadly. There's a good chance that one shot will take you out. When you describe it like that, all I can think of is I play my twitch of the eye, itch of the finger, (laughs) then I shoot. That's pretty much it. <laughs> you can punch, you know, die behind the bar maybe. That might take one second to get over there. And uh, so yeah. long. So oh, yeah. Long. <laughs> really an infinity if you think about it. Yeah. We're talking Wild Bunch, the board mm-hmm. game. Sounds like it should be reskinned as the Matrix gunfighting game. <laughs> yeah. Just everything in slow motion. <laughs> yeah, totally. But I have played it. It's got some really unusual rules. This is Richard Hamblin, so uh, yeah, it's not as unapproachable as Magic Realm, but uh, it's hard. Yeah, he was uh, he was a detail-oriented fellow, let's put it that way. Oh, but then he did Merchant of Venus, which is awesome. That's true. Good game. 
1994, Robo Rally came out, which was Wizards of the Coast by Richard Garfield. And I think this was the first program movement game I played. Yeah, same here. Yep, same. It's kind of the archetypal. I think that's what we had in mind when we put this topic in for the episode. It also thematically really works because you are literally programming robots. This game is a ton of fun. (laughs) It seems to be a game that people either really get or really don't. A lot of developer programmer types are super into Robo Rally Uh because they're used to thinking in that sort of procedural sequenced way. It's functionally the same as Bob as you. If you're a programmer, you're like, oh yeah, I get it. If you're not a programmer, you're like, what is even going on? That is a fascinating game. It's a great game. Outside the scope of the podcast, but still a really cool game. So Robo Rally, in case anyone hasn't played it, is basically you are ostensibly a bunch of robots that are having a race. You're going across a board that is full of pits and conveyor belts and smashy things and all the kind of stuff you'd expect in a Warner Brothers mechanized factory cartoon. You have a hand of cars. You program five moves, six five moves? moves, five moves, which you will execute in order. Move forward one, move forward two, turn left, turn right, turn around. And then at the end of each move, you know, each person executes their first move. Then if anyone is in front of your robot, you shoot them. And then conveyor belts move you and gears turn you or whatever. And then everybody executes their second move. So in theory, because you know what order the various board elements work, in theory, you can perfectly plan out your move. Thing is, robots tend to push each other when they get up close, and then everything goes horribly wrong. Everything would have been perfect if it wasn't for all the other damn players. (laughs) Oh, exactly. As your robot takes damage, you start having smaller hands, and eventually, if you take enough damage, one of your slots will become locked, which means whatever the last card in that you played in there, you're just going to do that every turn. Yeah, Yeah. as a minor malfunction, you're fine. Which is often horrible. (laughs) Guaranteed to be horrible. Almost certainly, yeah. It is a fun game. The base game, as written, has a pretty bad runaway leader problem. Yeah. Because if one person gets ahead, then nothing else is really going to be interfering with them, and they can kind of take off. But if you do good course design, there are also some variant rules where you like put shields around each flag that you have to touch, so you have to you know beat on a little bit, give people time to catch up. I have yet to see the new edition, which changes the rules somewhat. Okay. I have... Never actually played the base game of Robo Rally. I've only played what is lovingly called the cube, in which there are six boards that are all connected as if they were a cube oh in 3D space. It and like a nightmare. <laughs> it is, in fact, a nightmare because if you go off one edge of the board, you go immediately onto the edge of another board, and it is a little bit mind melty. So every year at uh, Gen Con, they have like a large play field. They actually play with real robots. I did that a couple years ago, and it was amazing. They're Mindstorm, right? Like yeah. they're Lego um, sets, and like they always do really great themed ones. Like you'll have an R two D two and a Wally <laughs> and all these random things running around, and like it's really fun watching that because you can literally program the actions and hit whatever the button is, mm-hmm. and they activate it, and you get to watch them in real time move around and bump into each other. Oh, and, that's cool. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. It's yeah. pretty awesome. How did your game go, Brian? <laughs> well, there were no dice involved. I think I think I did pretty well. This was actually an early, it was like a late beta version of it. So the, they were still just, you know, little track things. They didn't have any distinguishing characteristics. It was still really clever just to sort of see it actually happening in real time. I do miss in the original edition, there were little metal miniatures for each of the robots and they were so cute. My favorite was Twonky, which is basically a little TV set with legs. <laughs> If you remember the old Bloom County, it looks a lot like the Banana 9000. Watch it, Brian. You're dating yourself. We just talked about vinyl record albums, okay? I don't want to hear about dating myself. I think the thing with Robo Rally, though, is this game has a lot of bring-your-own-fun to it. Yeah. Mostly because I think the real experience of the game isn't so much in the 
programming of the movement. It is the cool, I've set this plan in motion. Let's watch and see what hilarity ensues from the chaos. But it doesn't really give you as a player a lot of control to mitigate that chaos, if I'm not mistaken. Other than planning and taking into account what you think other players might do. I mean, when things go wrong, things go wrong. And I think that's probably true of most of the games in this series. In many cases, they tend to be on the lighter side, not necessarily mechanically, but sort of attitude-wise. I mean, you can certainly play Robo Rally as a very serious game where, you know, you're focused and get everything right. That sounds awful. Honestly, the fun part is seeing how and when things go wrong and what happens. Oh, I'm I'm over there now, so now I'm just going to go straight into that pit. Yeah, but maybe chaos I can take you with courage, me. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I feel like other than Adventure and Swashbuckler, up until the 80s, is that really a theme that we saw in these games? Because it feels like with those dogfighting games, chaotic fun was... <laughs> Was not the point. Yeah, you know, those were a little bit more on the oh, serious Sock side. Oh, was a beer and pretzel. So was Blue Max in a lot of ways. Yeah? Yeah, it was often played in big groups. Everyone gets one plane, mm-hmm. and you're pretty much done. Yeah, and Nuclear War was never a serious <laughs> game, so... Oh, no. Because if you're planning a couple of moves ahead, you have no idea what that third right. action is going to be. One thing I don't think we mentioned is that Richard Garfield, the designer, is, of course, best known as a designer of Magic the Gathering, which was pretty successful. Hmm. Never heard of it. I've heard of it. that it's still going on, what, 30 years later or however long it is. But yeah, this was the first game of his that came out after Magic the Gathering, and I think it caught a lot of people by surprise because they were expecting something more like Magic, and this was very much not that. I know when it first came out, I don't think it maybe got as much enthusiasm as it deserved. Oh, yeah, totally. So in 2000, we had a game that was clearly influenced by Robo Rally called Dragon Delta. The current release of it is actually called River Dragons. Similarly to Robo Rally in Dragon Delta slash River Dragons, you're planning a series of actions that you're going to take over the turn. The sort of weirdly appropriate theme is it's part of some kind of East Asian river festival, and you're basically trying to get across to the island opposite the island you started on. And to do that, you have to put little stones on the board, which are little discs, and then you have a set of planks of various lengths that you're laying down on the stones that you can then walk on. So there's a couple layers of it going on. I mean, you have to put down the stones and then put down the planks and then make a move. Of course, you can pick up other people's planks. You can jump over things. And if anything goes wrong, if you make a move that you can't make for whatever reason, you go in the water and go back to your starting island. It is, if anything, even more chaotic than Robo Rally. You can also play a dragon card of a particular color, which will cancel that player's move during that same segment. So there is no guarantee at all that you will get to do all the things you program. So everything goes wrong. It's a fun game. It's relatively quick and very much has that sort of Robo Rally feel with even less complexity to it. But it's fun. There's also a really nice deluxe set out. It's huge and like I want one so badly. Yeah, it's real pretty. It's like three feet across <laughs> planks. They're like inlaid bamboo. Are you supposed to walk to across them inches. yourself? Ponds yeah. are ponds that are the size of like this can, <laughs> which you can't see, but it's a Lacroix can, one of those tall, skinny ones. Yeah, it's gorgeous. A couple of notes. I was translator for Jeu de Cartes about that time, mm, okay. so I did the English translation for. It. When the first version came in, the original title was going to be Mekong Delta. Oh, that's got some bad connotations. There are some associations in the American mind. I see. Yeah, so the cafe games are. Talk to them about that. How shall I put this? Let's not do that. (laughs) Yeah. I'd like to humbly request no. Yeah, Yeah, really. Yeah, that might have had some sales impact. People would be getting a very different game than they expected. (laughs) (laughs) 
I mean, I'm sure there is a game out by that name, but I'm sure it's a, it's it's a like detailed a war G- simulator. GMT war simulator. Yeah, exactly. In 2001, Jolly Roger Games came out with War Hamster Rally, which looks a lot like Robo Rally on the surface, but it's actually surprisingly different. Uh, it was designed by some guy named Frank Branham. Nailed it. Yeah. Something like that, anyway. <laughs> yeah, we finally get a name right. <laughs> <laughs> And as it happens, we have the opportunity to talk to the designer about this game and get the idea of some of his thoughts when putting it together. Yeah, I mean, I love the idea, I've, obviously because of my knowledge of stuff with. I've been obsessed with the, kind of the concept, and I played a lot of Robo Rally and hated it passionately, actually. <laughs> the big problems, Robo Rally was really set up. You got that default scenario, which was really long. You had a breakaway leader. And so I was doing a game, I called it Aquarium Derby, and I put all these little currents on the hexes. So basically, your facing's automatically determined by the space you're on. And then you get a bunch of cards that represent what you do. You play your card down for the next move and go. There were some problems that we had with playing Robo Rally. One was a lot of people couldn't do left and right. Yeah, you'll commonly see to this people day with people the, the Robo Rally twist. Yeah. Like, okay, I'm here and then I turn this way. And... So yeah, my cards have all the lefts and rights. You can choose left or right with each card, which also gave them a little more flexibility. The other change, of course, in my game is because your facing is determined by the hex you're on, if you get pushed, that's going to really screw with you because immediately you're turning. Mm-hmm. The other big issue I had with Robo Rally is that runaway leader. As soon as you get someone ahead, you can't touch them. So I introduced a bunch of board elements and action points that you get a pool of action points at the start of a game. And you can spin those to either swap out your card with something that's less awful or move a board element that can be used to push you onto a space which changes your facing, or push someone else who's way out in front of you, change their facing, and just watch the pain. <laughs> so much more interactive. It costs you points to screw with the leader, but you can really <laughs> mess up their turn. It feels like a black turtle shell in Mario Kart. Like, you're in the lead, screw you. <laughs> exactly. And yeah, there's kind of a blue turtle shell. Also let you change the ending. You can move the finish line. <laughs> <laughs> I actually remember seeing some of the early prototype stuff you had with all the aquarium bits. Yeah, I still have the aquarium with all these 3D little glass aquarium pieces and everything. The worst problem is, for that version, I was using modular hexes. And you got this case where you had to set up a proper, decent track. You know, all the arrows weren't facing like downstream, so you are always swimming upstream. So in Warhamster Rally, where there were two boards, one in front, one in back, one had the arrows kind of moving in an oval, and the other had a figure eight. And that's it. You got two boards, and all of the elements that were movable on the boards created enough variance. It was a decent game, but you didn't have to go off and design your own scenarios, because it took people a few months before they figured out how to play Robo Rally. Yeah. Single board, four point scenarios, pretty good. So how'd you go from aquarium theme to Warhamster theme? Jolly Roger was a good friend of John Kavalik, mm, Dork Tower fame. Yeah. And he basically said, I have this guy who's done a bunch of games. And he showed him uh, like three games that I'd sent him in and said, okay, I want to publish all of them. And then showed them all to John Kavalik. who's like, ooh, this. <laughs> we need to do a game on this. I like this a lot. Yeah. And he did all the artwork. There's not much artwork, but yeah, he did it all. You are really only planning for one turn at a time, so it's sort of on the border of what we're talking about. Yeah, no, and, and probably doesn't count. In this case, you're not doing a simultaneous plan. Everyone takes their turn. You execute whatever card you plan that you now hate from last mm-hmm. turn. And then last thing you do is plan your card for the next turn. Right. So you are, in a sense, planning for a board state that you're kind of guessing about. Yes, you always don't know. 
Yeah, so it fits. And also, I really wanted to talk about it because it does sort of respond specifically to some of the Robo Rally stuff. Yeah, it definitely is a Robo Rally show. Plus, you get to promote your own things. Although, I imagine it's a little bit out of print. I've been paid, just not getting reprinted, so I don't care. <laughs> you don't have to buy That's it. That's fair. <laughs> I already have a copy. I should get that signed someday. It'll be a collector's item. <laughs> Try to look for the small box with the linen finish. The first edition's really crappy. <laughs> <laughs> The rules in the first edition were a uh, long story. <laughs> Frank, you've published a game with crappy rules? They weren't crappy. Oh, yeah, they were. Okay. <laughs> I sit corrected. Uh, long story. All. Well, it is tradition. First editions, man. So moving out of that nonsense, uh, <laughs> this thing we're going to talk about is StarCraft, the board game. It was released in 2007, published by Fantasy Flight, designed by Corey Konyezka, nailed it, and Christian T. Peterson. So StarCraft's one of those big giant day-ender board games that came in the giant kind of double-wide Fantasy Flight box that like half of their games come in even if they don't need to. I think the technical term is the coffin box. Ooh, the coffin box. I like that. That was a real big box before Gloomhaven appeared on the <laughs> oh, scene. Oh, no. Uh, then Edge of Darkness. Then Edge of Darkness no, beat it I by know. just a tiny amount. I mean, it still is a big box. It's just it's big in a different way. It's longer than taller. Right. And so it's a, this big kind of day-ender. Everyone's playing. You know, it's how many? Is it total of five, I think? Game supports two to six. Oh, yep. crap. So you and up to six of your friends. Joe means five get to hang out in the starcraft universe and punch each other in the face in essence build things mobilize units invade surrounding locations the reason we're bringing it up here is specifically because the order placement mechanic in that game so on your turn you'll go on the table each person will place one order on the board and over the course of this phase you'll place four orders but the orders are resolved from top to bottom of the stack so if you're like oh Brian is going to attack me this turn. So I'm going to wait for him to attack me so that I can build units there. And then that gets resolved before he attacks. Obviously, if you end up not being able to do something, the token is discarded. Also, you can play a token with no real intention of doing anything as a bluff if you want to, right? You can play either on places where you have units or any systems adjacent to where you have units. And functionally, everything is set up in kind of like a grid with all the planets being connected. And then there's warp points and all kinds of various nonsense that happens. So you're revealing the cards as you play them, but they're not going to get resolved until everybody's played out all their things. You all play out all the order tokens. Okay. And then you resolve all the order tokens from top to bottom. Got it. Right. But so like if I play an order token and then Jason plays an order token. His is happening first. His is happening before my order token happens. So you resolve them function in the opposite order that you play them. That's weird. Yeah. It's super oh, weird. Oh yeah. But it works. But it is weird. Horus Heresy does the same thing. Forbidden Stars. Forbidden Stars does the same thing. Thank you, Frank. Forbidden Stars really is a reworking of StarCraft. Yeah. Really, they like lost the license from Blizzard or whatever and got their Games Workshop Warhammer themed. Grimdark. Which they've also lost the license of now. So. <laughs> yep. Personally, I don't understand how StarCraft is a day killer. If the Zerg players are doing it right, it should be over in a matter of like maybe an hour. <laughs> uh, yeah. So in 2008, Space Alert came out from Vlade Chivatel and Shek Games. We've talked about this game before. It is one of our favorite games, especially since we've just, as a group, started playing the expansion, which releases like a persistent character that you can take from game to game, which is great, and I'm disappointed we've not played it sooner. 
But when I think of program movement, this game is the game that immediately comes to mind. You are planning out 12 actions that you will execute over the course of the game, and you are doing it in three segments. And once you go to the next segment, you cannot go back and edit a previous segment of moves. And in essence, you are struggling to keep your rickety spacecraft afloat in space while under constant barrage of threats. And like, it's worth mentioning, everyone is doing that all at the same time. It's really hard to, if you've ever played Space Alert, to visualize kind of the controlled chaos of the game, right? As everyone... I'm not sure I'd describe it as controlled chaos. It's just pretty much chaos. Well, you're desperately trying to control it, <laughs> yes. right? As you're desperately all trying to make sure that like, oh, do we have enough energy? Are we taking care of all the threats? Have we dealt with all the internal threats? Hey, has everyone looked at the window on the last turn? And you're all moving, of course, on the board, so you can kind of see where everyone was, but you just don't know where there were two turns ago while you're planning their move because there are two turns ahead of you. And wait, did you do that on and... Did someone remember to jiggle the mouse? And I think <laughs> what is really interesting about this game is that it uses this programmed play in a cooperative manner that we haven't really seen up to this point. Mm -hmm. I feel like to a large extent, Space Alert is kind of the fullest expression of the program movement thing, because not only are you doing it, not just a handful of actions, but you're doing 15 full actions that are intricately linked to all the things other people are doing because you need to fire this gun so i need to put energy in this thing which means someone needs to fill energy in this thing so i can get the energy from that thing and if those things don't all happen in the right sequence at the right time you'll have somebody who's just merrily clicking the triggers on a gun and nothing happens because there's no energy while an alien ship bears down on you and for added fun, there's entire segments where you're not allowed to communicate with each other. Mm -hmm. There's a, what is it, a radio silence? Communications breakdown or whatever it is, yeah. So the entire time you're cooperatively trying to plan your, your moves for all the people so you have all the things that you need for the next round, oh, now we can't talk. And you just are gesturing wildly at each other trying to figure out what someone is placing as their card before time runs out. There's nothing quite like the feeling of, I have planned how I'm going to take care of this threat. And then when I take the first shot there's no energy. And when I take the second shot, there's no energy. And when I take the third shot, there's no energy. And then I merrily go on my way, having fully defeated this horrible threat to the ship. I did it, guys. Yeah, the game is full of those moments. And it's fascinating to me seeing the sort of slow crashing thing that happens. Because the other thing that's kind of unique to this game is, you know, if you're playing something like Robo Rally, you're dealing with your thing, and someone else can do something that will mess with your thing, or you can do something that will mess with their particular turn. In Space Alert, one person misses one thing, everything goes crashing and falling mm -hmm. apart. It's a lot of plate spinning that is very susceptible to the slightest nudge. It does have some interesting areas in which players interact with each other. Like one of the things that comes to my mind is that you can only one person can take the elevator. And if two people try to take the elevator, somebody doesn't get to do it. And that could throw, like you said, everything in the chaos. Now, we were talking about earlier how a lot of games don't give players a lot of control during the execution phase, and Space Alert kind of addresses that a little bit by letting you stumble, I think they call it. Yeah, basically, you can, if you have a car that's like, oh crap, I really don't want to do that, you can basically either flip it or ignore it by shifting all of your other cards back a turn, which is fine unless someone is expecting something to have been done by a certain time point. Right, it might fix some things. <laughs> yeah, it's really a marvelous game. It has one of the funniest rule books I've ever read. Oh, yeah. Vlada's real good at those in general, and Space Alert is one of the best. 
I think it's the best. Yeah. I think this is the first time I ever saw a rule book that was like a interactive tutorial. Because like the rules are written as a welcome to your training. Let's do this one thing at a time. And yeah. it kind of walks you through those yeah, steps. Yeah, it's a great training process for the game. We also have recently started experimenting with the expansion, which includes double action cards. And if you're using those, then each of your cards is doing two things. Maybe you... Maybe you move left and push a button, or maybe you go downstairs and do a thing. Madness. And you get, get, air quotes, <laughs> to do both of the things on the card. Which, on the one hand, in theory, means you can get a lot more done in the same amount of time, but I don't want to move. I just want to stand here and do the thing. No, we got to do both parts. So. Also, like, what that implies is that, like, if you are standing on the left side of the ship and you play a left and push the button, like, your dude runs into the wall and then pushes the button. <laughs> Remember the first time I saw the box? It looks like the guy's Cyclops from X Men <laughs> shooting an optic blast. <laughs> Nothing about it looks like it's comedic at all. It looks super serious. Like, oh, this is a serious, cooperative, simultaneous, you know, action game. And then you read the manual, you're like, wait, what? What do you mean I have to jiggle the mouse? I don't understand. Well, you know, we have software pre installed by the advertising agency for the space company. And so it's fine. Just jiggle the mouse and the screensaver won't come up and you'll be fine. Wait a minute, Jason. You haven't been taking our games of Space Alert seriously? (laughs) I am disappointed. Deadly seriously. I'm too busy running into walls and getting stuck in elevators. (laughs) It's a thing that happens. People died on those spaceships, Jason. (laughs) Well, spaceships like those, the ones they died on have exploded, but... (laughs) No, I think my favorite is always launching the missile that takes like a certain number of rounds to get to the target and just missing it by like one round. You're like, ah, no. <laughs> it's a great game. And then as far as games we've talked about before, I did also want to briefly mention Impulse, which was a 2013 release by Carl Chudik. We talked about this one in our 4X Games episode. We weren't that keen on the game as a whole because it's kind of fiddly and weird, but it is really interesting because the impulse of the title is basically a series of cards that everyone executes on their turn, then they add a card to the end and take a card off the beginning. So there's basically a shared programmed action thing, which we haven't seen elsewhere and I think is kind of interesting. I'd just like to see it in a better game. From 2013, we have a game called Bomb Squad. This is published by Tasty Minstrel Games, designed by Dan Keltner and David Short. And I like this game. It hates me. It is nerve-wracking. Well, it's called Bomb Squad. It should be yeah, nerve-wracking. You've got basically one Bomb Squad robot that you're sending in to defuse the bombs before the building blows up and kills everyone. It may have to drag out people, sneak into places, do a lot of turn and everything. Your big limit is battery, in that you have so many turns to do it and you can play as many program movement cards as you want during a turn and it kind of feels like space alert you plan out your movement cards and then you execute them for that turn the big pain is everything else actually when you're playing cards you're basically playing a game of hanabi you can't see your movement cards but you're forced to ask questions or play a card blindly face down onto the robot everyone else can see what you're playing you aren't quite sure And most importantly, you're doing all this in real time. So you have like two minutes to do a turn. So (laughs) when you play a card, do you see what it is at that point after you've played it? No. (laughs) Depending on the rules. The early ones allow you to play a face up. So your set of possible states that the robot is in is getting exponentially bigger. And you're generally only playing about four to eight cards, depending. But of course, everyone else got to see it. Sure. The game is played in real time, you said? Like Space Alert. Right. Planning phases done in real time. The execution's then done at the end of the turn. I could play Space Alert Hanabi. 
We should try this. That sounds fascinating. It is Space Alert Hanabi, basically. Yeah. The missions are easier. You've only got one piece, and you're all moving that same piece. Sounds great. We should do this. I'm fascinated to try it. That sounds horrifying. You can totally see how this works. And it does work because you're doing it in real time, like Space Alert. It is nerve-wracking. Because you're trying to do it with the Hanabi and remembering which card is which from the clues you're given in real time. We've had some rounds that just go perfectly. You're nailing, moving, no problem. And some rounds just no, and the entire mission goes away. <laughs> but yeah, it's a weird kind of space alert variant in a lot of ways. Hmm. Fascinating. So kind of returning back to a, a Western flavor here, we've got Colt Express in uh, 2014 by Ludenot, designed by Christoph Rumbolt. In Colt Express, you're riding in a train while you're trying to rob it. So the game's fascinating because there are about six or eight turns in the game. There's an action card for each turn, and it will be like, hey, every player plays a card, then every player plays a card, then every player plays a hidden card, then every player plays two cards, and every player plays a card, but backwards. And then you play out all the cards, and then that's the order that you resolve stuff in. And so it's like, hey, cool, let me look at the board. Okay, cool, I'm in this train car, there's a couple people here, there's a gem on the ground, cool, I'll pick up the gem. And Jason looks at me, he's like, I know Joe's going to pick up that gem, he's real greedy, so I'm going to punch him and make him drop that gem. And Mike's like, cool. Joe definitely picked up that gem. Jason definitely pumped Joe. So I'm going to pick up that gem. And it has this kind of like, hey, let me try to figure out what everyone's doing. And there's lots of there's lots of spaces. There's six train cars. There might be Delora in the front, depending on if you have that expansion <laughs> or not. And so there's a lot of space to move around. There's a couple interesting mechanics in that game that I really like. At the start of the game, you have a gun that has six bullets in it. And if you manage to fully empty your gun, you get $1,000 at the end. Because it's actually really hard to do. Because at some point in the past, you said, I'm going to fire my gun. If there's not a target, you don't fire your gun. You look around like, well, I really want to fire my gun, but there's no one here. I'm not going to fire bolts in the air. You don't want to waste bullets. No, no, they're expensive. (laughs) Very expensive. And every player has one specific ability that lets them cheat a little bit, right? All the characters are interesting. There is a strong box up in in the front of the train, which has a lot of money. But also, that's where the sheriff hangs out. And if you get the sheriff involved, it's going to be really bad for everyone. It's an Old West thing, so of course you can climb up on top of the train, and at that point you can shoot much farther. And it's worth noting, there's a three-dimensional cardboard train that you're building out that your little meeples are running around Yeah, on. absolutely. When I was at Essen a few years back, they had the jumbo version where each car was about eight inches long, <laughs> and the meeples were, you know, like Lego minifig size. It was. But uh, even in the base game, all the miniatures look really nice. Oh yeah, it's a beautiful it's game. It's a beautiful game. Pretty easy to play. Sean, friend of the show who occasionally listens and might even hear this, has been playing it with his kids a lot. Mm -hmm. So it's a good one to sort of get this concept introduced to people who maybe aren't as hardcore gamers. It's pretty, it's fun. It runs maybe 45 minutes-ish. It's not a game you can take too seriously because all of your plans will go horribly wrong. Yeah. And a lot like what we had talked about earlier, I think the thing that this game does that's interesting is it creates a stack of played cards so that everybody is contributing to the same stack. And then you flip that stack over and execute from top to bottom. And it's especially interesting when you get to the cards that were played unrevealed because those are already right side up in the stack, and you're like, oh, oh, that's what that person did. It's great. Yeah, the mix of public and private cards is really a nice twist. So in 2015, Fantasy Flight released the game Star Wars Armada, which is kind of a follow-up if you want to think about their great success with Star Wars X-Wing. They said, hey, why don't we just extend this to capital ships instead of just fighters? And so in Armada, essentially it's a skirmish game. It's usually two players duking it out with... Star Destroyers, Mon Calmari Cruisers, Krillin Corvettes, 
earning points by destroying enemy ships or accomplishing whatever the, the particular mission is for that scenario. And the way that they tried to model how big ships operate in this game is pretty fascinating. Each ship has assigned a command value, and what that command value does is it tells you how many orders you have to basically pre-program for that ship, and they're attempting to really model, hey, you know, a Star Destroyer doesn't turn on a dime, (laughs) it doesn't react as quickly as, you know, a small rebel freighter, so let's go ahead and give them a high command value. So, for example, a Star Destroyer has a command value of four. At the beginning of the game, you're going to assign four command dials to the Star Destroyer. So you might say, okay, well, in my first turn, I'm probably going to be moving around, so I'm going to do a Navigate command. In the second turn, maybe another Navigate command, because I might want to turn. Third turn, I'm probably going to need more guns, so I'll do a Concentrate Fire command. And fourth turn, I'm probably getting shot in the face, so I'm going to do a Repair command. And you're pre-programming that, and for the most part, you can't change that. Meanwhile, the crafty rebels that you're fighting, I've got a one-command ship, so first round, I'm going to do Navigate. Cool. Next round comes around. I get to adjust. Oh, he's closer than I thought. Maybe I'll shoot him. Okay, well, I took more damage than I thought that turn. I'm going to do a repair command instead of what I was thinking about before. But they can change it every single turn. Meanwhile, the the plotting store destroyer is like, okay, I just uh, set up a repair command that I didn't need, and I can't do anything with it. Now, they do have some mitigation. If you resolve a command that mm, at the moment isn't useful to you, you can keep it as a token. And that token's not quite as good, but you can resolve it on later turns. And the nice thing is, the higher your command value, the more tokens you can hold. So it kind of mitigates that, ugh, I really planned this badly. And, you know, sometimes when you're starting the game, that first round you're just like, what token do I think I'll need later on in the game? Because, like, you don't need a concentrate fire command in the first round because you're never going to hit anything. You're still able to move and fire on each turn. You're not really choosing exactly what you do. You just sort of where your ship's focus is. Mm-hmm. I do like Armada. I wish I had brain space to get another miniatures game in play. I love the Star Wars theme. It does some really interesting mechanical things, and the models are all pre-painted and pretty darn pretty. I wish Joe hadn't completely trolled you so badly in, <laughs> oh, in the Corellian Conflict. I well, really did. Yeah. Really the Corellian Conflict is uh, their sort of campaign system, or their first one anyway. Yeah. It was a little unbalanced. I went to Jason. I was like, Jason, what's the best Imperial build? He's like, well, there's this Rhymer Fireball build that's pretty popular right now. And I was like, cool, I'll do that. And it was the trolliest list yes, I've it, ever seen. Yes, it just seen. wrecked us completely. Like anyone close to Rhymer just explodes in shrapnel of metal everywhere. And there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. Unfortunately, Brian and I, who are on the Rebels side made our own list and we had never played the game before so they were definitely Joe a had list never played the game before but he had some inside help listen all i said was what's the best thing jason told me what the best thing was and then i did it i think the direct quote was can i ruin this game for everyone else <laughs> and the answer is yes 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 you can <laughs> i did sell all my armada stuff shortly oh. after that i think that also exposed a couple of ill-balanced problems with the Corellian conflict. Yeah, that, that oh, campaign yeah. was no, not There was not no catch-up me- mechanism is the yeah, problem. It definitely has a runaway leader problem. And the other thing is, like a lot of these skirmishy miniatures games, there are constantly new models coming out. There are constantly balanced tweaks. The meta is constantly changing. And if you're going to play it seriously, you kind of have to stay on top of it. And I only have room in my life to do that with one game, so... Rhymer has since been nerfed. He has. He has been nerfed, yeah. Jason would like to correct the record here that they are, in fact, not releasing new stuff. Uh, They've got two that are coming out this year at some point, maybe. Going back to the mechanisms, recently they've added a new mechanic called raid tokens. 
that mess with the command dials. Oh, okay. So basically, a lot of squadrons will do it. Some upgrades will do it, where essentially, if you're in a certain range, you'll attack someone, and you're like, cool, I give them a raid token that's a repair raid token. Now that person cannot resolve that command until they either spend a repair token or they just discard their next command dial. So they're kind of playing with that idea. It hasn't seemed to have had much impact so far, but now they're having characters that can drop multiples Hmm. on people. So now you're starting to really restrict what people do. And if I just pounded the crap out of your Mon Calamari cruiser and you're clearly going to do a repair command next, have a raid token. No, you're not. (laughs) You're not doing that. Like I said, I enjoyed playing it, but it's one that I think I really need to commit to and and I can't. There's a lot of bits to it. And yeah, there's a lot of crazy interactions it does require a lot of keeping up with but i love it my brother bought it for me back when it first came out and i didn't even know it existed my real goal is really just to convince someone to play the battle of endor with me so we can just recreate the end of return of the jedi (laughs) well and i think like brian said i think the interesting thing about the program movement for armada is that you're not necessarily programming what you're doing on a Mm -hmm. turn you are programming what you are slightly better at yep our next game is uh, one of my personal favorites, Mechs versus Minions, designed by really Stone LeBron, but Chris Cantrell, Rick Ernst, Prashant Sarsvet, and uh, Nathan Tiras were all designers. It was published gloriously by Riot Games in 2016, and this is kind of a co-op-y Robo Rally game. First of all, the production is the single best deal in gaming ever. For your 80 bucks, you get a huge freaking box, four giant pre-painted mechs, dice, a hundred washed minions. Washed in the painting sense, right? Basically, yeah, yeah, washed in the painting sense. No, they're very clean, Brian. Well, I mean, what would help? <laughs> a amazing surprise in a box that is to be revealed later, and ten envelopes, each containing the next mission, and some extra cards that you add to the decks. There's a little bit of a hint of legacy thing going on. Hmm. And a timer, everything about the game is just jaw-dropping. The entire container is an insert that spreads out like your own you know, custom insert for laying out on the table and organizing everything. It's stunning. I don't think you can find copies for 80. They published like 80,000 copies. If you can find one for cheap, just buy it. Looks like they're currently going for 150 on Amazon. Which feels like what the game should cost retail. Yeah, I can't believe it's 80. is a, such a bargain. I mean, the paint jobs are good. The four initial mechs are just gorgeous. So anyway, the way the game works is, well, you have a mission and you're doing it. Cooperatively, you have often a lot of the missions involve clearing minions. And the board will spend on and be covered with these little tiny ghosty looking rogue figures and you just have to step on them or blast them to blow them away so you might take out you know six or seven minions per round which the way you do this is everyone gets a card every turn you deal those out just in the middle of the table and turn over a timer you get about 30 seconds to decide which one you want you then add this to your collection of five cards at the bottom which have remained from previous turns So you're not only planning for the current turn, but you're progressively increasing what you're doing on each succeeding turn. You can actually just add the card to your current movement, or you can discard it to get rid of damage. Damage works a lot like Robo Rally, which we talked about, where you get a random damage card, which may just sit on that slot and do some locked action for that slot until you basically toss a card on a future turn to get rid of the damage. Or you can use it to swap two slots. You can also add cards to slots. 
each particular action card gets more powerful the more of the same type <laughs> you slot into that. So while you may just, you know, do a ping like at one space ahead, you know, if you have all three cards of that, you may ping just the entire column down the board, which may take out, you know, 10 minions or so. <laughs> so you start out each with just kind of a little, okay, I move. Yay, I'm done. And toward the end of the game, if you've got a decent, you might move, move, step, I'm going to jump over, land, splat on this group, and then blow up the, everything diagonally of me. And so that's what playing mechs and minions feels like. It's <laughs> awesome. Absolutely awesome to play. Oh, that sounds great. I didn't realize it was such a production feat. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's Riot Games. This is, these are the League of Legends guys. They have money. Yeah, fair. And the game's fun. Yeah, the funny thing is I have a friend who owns it, and he's never played it. Every time we come over, I'm like, wow, this game looks gorgeous. Let's play it. We open it up. We look at all the beautiful pieces, and he's like, I don't know how to play this. And he just gets more and more intimidated, and <laughs> it just doesn't happen. It's, it's got a tutorial. So he it should sell you his copy. <laughs> yeah, I like the It's got a tutorial. <laughs> it walks you through it with, like, the first couple. It starts you out really easily with the limited kind of thing. So, yeah, it's quite nice. Now we don't have to let him know that because, yeah, it's every time we open it up, he's like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know about this. <laughs> I'm scared. Yeah. He's Hold also me. the guy who has owned too many bones longer than me and hasn't played it because he's just like, oh, my gosh. This is, there's, and to be fair, there's a lot to going on with too many bones. That's true. Oh, yeah. But he has you. You should long. help him. Well, yeah. I keep promising to and not doing that. <laughs> and, yeah, this is a game that I used to convert some because it looks like a total Ameritrash game. Mm. But it's really a puzzle planning co-op game. And even some diehard Euros players have converted to playing this because it is really thinky and puzzly. Rover Rally, you're kind of constrained by the cards. It's usually fairly obvious what you're doing. This is much trickier because you're progressively having to do it. It's like, oh, this would be good for this turn, but I you would then go into a pit on the next turn and I'm just, yeah, that's not happening. Our next game is The Dragon and Flagon, released in 2016 by Stronghold Games, designed by brothers Jeff Engelstein and Brian Engelstein, and uh, one of their sons, Sidney Engelstein, I think I have those relationships right. If I failed, sorry, Jeff. And pretty much everything we said about Swashbuckler applies to this. It is a re-implementation of Swashbuckler. With the serial numbers filed off, the theme is now fantasy guys fighting in a typical fantasy tavern. Big differences here are use cards. You're only planning two moves ahead. So when you execute your action, you plan for what you're doing two turns from now. And instead of the weird scenario conditions, you're going for victory points. So every time you do a point of damage to somebody, you get his victory points. If you knock them out, I think you get a few more. You can get little mission cards that give you extra victory points, but that's it. It also plays in an hour. Yeah, I was so say, big it, point there. The board looks a lot more contained than Swashbuckler. Yeah, it's tighter. It's also got these fantastic furniture pieces. I know. So you've got actual little tables and chairs and barrels. Oh, uh-huh, nice. Oh, yeah. That and it plays up to eight. Yeah. That sounds terrifying. Eight will go longer, obviously. Sure. You know, a typical four-player game will be like an hour. And I might need to get a copy of that. Like, yeah. I love, I, I, <laughs> I like didn't even know this games. existed. Yeah. Oh yeah. And uh, there are actually thirty-six different actions. So there's Jesus. a lot, a lot more custom and weird, wacky actions because you've got spellcasters and you've kind of got your own special cards, and each character has their own flavor because they're typical fantasy kind of uh, archetypes. Mm. It's why you wouldn't care about Swashbuckler anymore. Yeah, but it comes in a box. I mean... Oh, Oh, right. Albums, yeah. (laughs) Stronghold has not steered me wrong, so I might be picking this one up. 
This one sounds slash looks like a lot of fun. I think the only thing it's missing is miniatures, but uh, that can oh, be remedied. Oh, I'm not interested. Because we have miniatures. <laughs> yeah, you, you just lost Jason. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If you like Swashbuckler, I mean, seriously, get this, because it is exactly Swashbuckler, and it's exactly what you wanted to be playing when you were playing Swashbuckler. Awesome. So they have 3D furniture, but no miniatures? That's so They're weird. They're standees. They're I know. Standees. It's very disappointing. Yeah, Stronghold, you let me down, man. There is a 2019 game designed by Nikki Valens, published by Plat Hat Games, that I've not played. It's showing up tomorrow. It's called Quirky Circuits. Heard of it. If you know, they do the Mice and Mystic stuff, Fables. This is another adventure book game. So it's got a book board format with a bunch of scenarios. I think there's a story winding through it, given it's by Nikki Valens. Probably. Yeah, probably Good chance. Story. But you are programming a bunch of various household robots to do various tasks you've got four different absolutely gorgeous little robots and you're moving them around little tiles of various rooms in a house to do things in this one the cards actually have multiple moves on them so they might be turn left 90 turn left 180 move two move three move one and basically on your turn you play a card face down but all of you are controlling the same robot oh my gosh (laughs) All right. <laughs> you can tell exactly how that's going to go. I mean, that's pretty much it. Interesting. And it's co-op? It's co-op. Yeah. I hope so. <laughs> really so, yeah. Bad. And you're not allowed to say exactly what you play. Sure. You're just hoping that you kind of got an Chaos 1C yeah. because it's that kind of game. Yeah, no, interesting. I'll be curious to see what you think of it once you've played it. Yeah, it's a fairly inexpensive game. And the setup and designer just said, oh, well, I have to buy that. <laughs> Now that you've told me about that, I, I really want somebody to make, and this is a phrase that probably will only make sense to Frank, I really want somebody to make a Mind Forever Voyaging board game. Like you the old Infocom. insane. Yes, insane I am. person. <laughs> but do you see how that could be awesome? No. Oh, how it could be awesome? Yes. How you could do it? No. Yeah. All right. Well, that's, oh, that's a topic Lord. for another time. So it's also worth bringing up that Root, uh, when you're playing the Eerie, you're planning for future turns, playing out cards, because every turn you have to add something to your decree, and the decree is the things you have to do in that specific order, and if you can't do any of them, your entire faction blows up. So yeah. And they execute the leader. Yeah, yeah go yeah. that. Yeah. Obviously. So every turn you're looking at the board, it's like, oh, I need to build twice once in a fox clearing, and then attack twice once in a mouse clearing. How do I... That's not going to happen. Oh, then you figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Oh, best of all, you can play two cards. That makes things so much better. <laughs> yes. It gives you so much more power for sure. So so you should do that early just so you can advance and get up to the case where you're <laughs> in pain. That's yeah. true. I remember the first time we played Root, it's like no one knew enough to interfere with the Irie when they were doing that. Same and they just kind of ran away with it. Oh, we should probably mess with their plans some. Oh, it is so satisfying. You're like, oh, you need that one clearing? Oh, oh, well. (laughs) It's one of those things like you should just put a little rock in those gears. They'll be fine. Every once in a while. So as a teacher, I actually teach programming to elementary school students and one game that's been recommended to me on several occasions i've never actually played it though is a 2008 release by dan shapiro and think fun games called robot turtles and this is a basically basic coding concepts educational tool for young students haven't actually used it, but it does seem to teach kind of those basic concepts. Like Brian, you mentioned earlier that in Robo Rally, people are doing the do I turn doing left, the twist, yeah. Right. It looks at that in a fun aesthetic for those young ages. So if you've got any kids who are interested in coding, that might could be one to pick up. 
If you've got any program movement or program action games you'd like to offer opinions on, we always love hearing from you. Still love those iTunes reviews and any kind of commentary or feedback on Facebook or Twitter or any of that social media stuff. We're always glad to hear from you. And other than that, I guess we're done here and we'll talk at you next month. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Ascent of Board Games, which is protected by the Creative Commons license. Opening and closing music is Evening Melodrama by Kevin MacLeod via Incompetech.com. Full details can be found at AscentOfBoardGames.com. Please share, like, subscribe, review, and comment on this podcast. And thank you for listening. I'm really bad at saying Corey's last name. Knizia? No. That's Ryder. That's a different <laughs> Corey Knizia? Corey Knizia is very confusing.